Father, that's our prayer as we come not only to every hour of the week, we are so dependent upon you, but we are especially dependent upon you. We need you this hour to help us to be illumined by your Holy Spirit to see and to understand the text in front of us and then to be able to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Holy Spirit, come and work through the word of God. Show us our Lord Jesus Christ. Show us our sin and remind us of our Savior who is greater than all of our sin. Thank you for your word and for the opportunity to gather to attend to it. Father, you spoke light into the darkness. Speak to us, Lord, this morning through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After the resurrection of, of Jesus, Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, said, to the other disciples, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And history, rightly so, has dubbed him as Doubting Thomas. But if the truth be told, every single Christian in this room, in listening to this message, struggles with doubt at one time or another. We struggle to believe the truth about Jesus. Sometimes even great saints of God fall into periods of despondent doubt. John MacArthur notes that Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Gideon, Elijah, and many of the apostles had their periods of doubt. And I would argue that even the one about whom Jesus said, I say to you that among those born of women, there is not one greater. Even he, the greatest one at the time Jesus spoke, could fall into despondent doubt. Take your Bibles this morning, and let's look at that account of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, it's page 1029, if you have a pew Bible, 1029, please turn to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read our text this morning, which will be verses 18 through 23. Luke chapter 7, find verse 18, and as you're turning... Remember that Jesus has just raised the, the only son of a widow from the dead in a little no-name town called Nain. And the people of that funeral procession, and, which was a pretty great crowd, and the great crowd that was following Jesus sort of met outside that gate and witnessed this incredible miracle, and they were filled with fear, and they were glorifying God, and they were saying certain things like, he's a great prophet, and he's arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And verse 17 says that this report, this report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. Word was on the street 
and the news of the words and works of our Lord Jesus Christ were spreading and they were they reached the ears of the disciples of John the Baptist. And that's where we pick up in our passage in verse 18. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, and then they repeated exactly the same, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to, to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Doubt about Jesus can surface in the life of even mature believers. Doubt about Jesus can surface in the life of even mature believers as it did in the life of John the Baptist. I looked up the word doubt in one of my Bible encyclopedias. It wasn't very profitable. I got to the word doubt and it said there wasn't an entry there in the Bible encyclopedia. You know what it said? Doubt. It said, see unbelief. Enough said. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So what does Luke, who wrote this account, reveal about the doubt of John the Baptist? And so this morning we're going to look at that. We're going to look at four aspects of John the Baptist's doubt at this moment in his life. And by extension, these four aspects are going to be uh, aspects of the doubt that can creep in in the life of even a mature believer. Four aspects of doubt. So number one, the surprise of doubt. The surprise of doubt. John the Baptist, if you recall, was the cousin, the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ. Elizabeth was his mother, and of course, Mary was the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth and Mary were friends, and they were relatives, and Elizabeth and Mary, even before their babies were born, were both together. And that account of, of them being together, pregnant, is found in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. And at that time, um, as they were interacting, John the Baptist, even as a baby in the womb of Elizabeth, felt the presence of Jesus, and he leapt for joy over Jesus in the womb. And that's interpreted for us in Luke chapter 1 verse 15 that says that John the Baptist was actually filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Wow. That's a head start. And then, of course, his father, Zacharias, Zacharias was also, who was the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Spirit. And he then, 
prophesied that John would be the prophet of the Most High and would prepare the way of the Lord. And, and so Zechariah has this incredible prophecy of, of the Old Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, in, in the New Covenant, all in one prophetic poem about John the Baptist and then Jesus because he goes on to prophesy of the Lord, the Messiah, who would be the sunrise on high to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I mean, this was Zacharias's moment. This is his dad. Do you think that Zacharias might have brought that up from time to time with his son, John? The identity of Jesus? John believed in Jesus. He had been instructed by his father, all those covenants found their fulfillment in the Messiah, the coming one, the expected one. And he knew his name to be Jesus. And John the Baptist preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He loved to point out Jesus to his own disciples and to everybody else. Hey, don't follow me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending upon him as a dove. He heard a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I had well pleased. And he spent his entire life being equipped, being prepared to prepare the way for the Lord. His entire life was about Jesus. preaching sin and repentance, pointing people to Jesus. Indeed, among those born of women, there is no wonder that John is called the greatest. And yet in our passage today, the great John the Baptist is at a low point. He is discouraged and he is doubting. And I want you to be surprised by that. To be surprised by doubt. And you have to ask the question. I know what you're thinking. I was thinking as I started studying this passage the same thing. What? You, John? Why are you struggling to believe? Why are you struggling with doubt? Well, that leads us to our second aspect of doubt here, the source of doubt. Why? What is the source of doubt? Here it is. I'll just, I'll just tell you what it is, and we'll explain it. John, John the Baptist's expectations are not being met, and that leads to doubt. Two, two categories of expectations are not being met. Number one, Personal expectations are not being met. Personal expectations. If you can keep your finger in your place, just turn a few pages back to Luke chapter 3 in verse 20. Luke chapter 3 in verse 20. It simply says this, and I want you to see it. Luke chapter 3 verse 20 says that Herod locked John up in prison. Okay? So where is John the Baptist? Why doesn't he go himself to Jesus? He's in prison. In fact, in the parallel passage to this account in Matthew chapter 11, don't turn to Matthew chapter 11, but that's kind of the parallel passage. The text actually says it directly that that when John while imprisoned, while imprisoned, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus. So clearly, John is in prison at the time of this account. His personal expectations of his life were not being met. You remember the story. If you're not familiar, let me explain it to you. Uh, John the Baptist is a bold preacher. 
He calls out sin when and where he sees it. And John had very boldly rebuked Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod, the ruler of that region, for his illegitimate marriage to Herodias. Illegitimate and, frankly, incestual marriage to Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. It was just, I mean, you can't even sort that out. And John said, enough. And he called Herod out on it. It was very sinful. And John confronted this sin. And, and Herod wasn't happy about it, but Herodias was really unhappy about it. And Herodias tried to, to figure out how to get him killed right away. But Herod was kind of awed by John the Baptist and his ministry, so he feared the crowds a little bit too that would turn against him if he killed John. So he decided to lock John the Baptist up in prison. And so he put him in prison about eight, eight kilometers east of the Dead Sea, pretty, uh, you know, a dark dungeon in the region of Machaerus, doesn't matter, but by the Dead Sea. And John was in the darkness in prison, discouraged. After all, John had spent his whole life faithfully following God, faithfully announcing the Savior, preparing the way for the Savior, he was just being faithful when he confronted this sin. He had sacrificed so much for God, and yet he found himself in a prison cell basically on death row. Surely Jesus, the coming one, the powerful Messiah, would be able to free him, to free him. Why would he not? Where was he? I thought the Messiah was coming in power to overcome our enemies, to conquer our enemies. Perhaps John's doubt was a little bit like Job's and doubt, who kind of, as, as Dan has been preaching, maybe failed to really understand some theological principles, and there were some misunderstandings of theology in there in their day and, and didn't understand God's plan and purposes. They misunderstood the nature of suffering itself. And of course, John is there. John's alone. And he's already been in prison for months. And he's locked up. And he's, there's isolation. There's isolation. There's isolation. Which can fuel doubt. Sometimes failed personal expectations in our life and isolation from those to encourage us can be the source of doubt. That's clearly from the text. There's a personal expectations that are not met. But then I think more importantly, number two, the source of doubt, messianic expectations not met. Okay, and I'll turn back to our passage and find the first verse in verse 18. Let me show you this. Verse 18 of Luke chapter 7, under messianic expectations not met. Okay. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. And then John the Baptist summoned his disciples and sent them to Jesus. You see, the context there is the report of, of the disciples of John the Baptist who had seen, now John was languishing in prison, he hadn't seen much of any of this with his own eyes. But John the Baptist's disciples came and told him about that. In the context, they came and said, hey, guess what? Guess what Jesus is doing? He's saving Gentiles. Uh, not just any Gentiles, Roman soldiers. He's speaking a word, and they're healed. Oh, and he, you should have seen what he did to this widow's son. 
She's completely alone. She's lost her husband. She lost her boy. He raised her, he, he raised her from the dead. He touched, he touched the coffin. He defiled himself. John's in the darkness hearing the stories about Jesus. Now, look at the last verse as we look at this messianic expectations not met. Look at verse 23, what, what Jesus really is saying to John, to us, and to the disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 23, blessed is he who does not take offense. What? Look at it very clearly. Who does not take offense at me. This is doubt about Jesus based on the reports that he had heard. Okay, so messianic expectations are not met. Now, take, go back and let's try to put this together for you of what might be happening, I think is happening. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Take a look at it. Keep your finger back in Luke chapter 7. Okay, so we have some reports about Jesus. This is clearly... Um, the context is doubt about um, Jesus. And we see then in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, we're reminded about the preaching of John the Baptist. Look at it. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one coming. Are you the coming one? This is the same idea, the same phrase, actually, in the Greek text. Are you the coming one? Are you the expected one? Well, apparently, in Luke chapter 3, he knew. Clearly, he says, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Clearly, John believed that the Messiah was coming and was going to come and destroy the enemies of God as predicted in the prophets of old. Clearly, verse 16 is a fire for judgment. The winnowing fork isn't, is a term of judgment. The winnowing fork of the Messiah, he'll gather up wheat into his barn and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That seems like judgment to me and it did to John. So think about John. So why is John rotting in prison? The enemies are supposed to be put down. Why is Herod and Herodias still laughing it up from the palace with their soft clothing? Why is Jesus being misunderstood and rejected? Why, why were the leaders who were so full of greed and hypocrisy not to be held to account? Why is Jesus healing everybody with mercy and compassion and pity, but I'm hearing nothing of judgment upon sinners? MacArthur is right, quotes, but Jesus, instead of bringing destruction and judgment upon unbelievers, brought them to healing and compassion, in quotes. And John had called, you brood of vipers. I mean, he's pretty intense. He's preaching judgment. He calls sinners to repent in order to avoid the Messiah's soon and sudden ju judgment. The king is here. There is no justice without judgment. But John had incomplete revelation. He didn't realize that there would be a time for judgment. But he was wrong about the timing. You see, Jesus did not 
meet John's expectations about what the Messiah would be like. His style of ministry was not what he expected. He didn't know that Jesus would be both the suffering servant and the conquering king. What? Jesus gets misunderstood, rejected, and you're telling me this story that his own hometown tried to throw him off the cliff and the fire of God did not pour down upon the altar like Elijah of old? They tried to throw him off the cliff in his own hometown? What are you telling me, guys? Jesus is just going from no-name city to no-name city doing good and preaching and that's it? I mean, is the Messiah supposed to show mercy to Roman army officials? The Roman, the Gentile Roman, the enemy of the people of God, and here I am rotting away in Herod's prison. Doesn't Jesus have the power to free me? When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we question whether or not, listen, when Jesus does not meet our expectations, write this down. When Jesus does not meet our expectations, we are tempted to question whether or not he is the expected one. And we can fall into doubt when our expectations are not met. That's so similar, isn't it the same for us today? I mean, think about what's happened to us maybe in our past or what has, is happening now. Something has broken into our world that seems to contradict or challenge what we have known, what we have previously believed about Jesus, about God's word. And, and, and that breaks in and it seems to overwhelm the reality of the promises of God found in the word. For John, it was the mercy and not judgment. It was prison and not power. What is it for you? What is it for you? What is it for me? Is it some article or some book? Or some podcast that has you just reeling. Is this true? This is not what I have believed my whole life. Your anthropology professor at the U of M gets a hold of you. You've been diagnosed with cancer. And you're really struggling in your business. And you're at the same time, Lord? Really? At the same time? All things work together for good. Hmm. Hmm. Your past church experiences are filled with pain and disappointment. And we keep telling you, the pastors around here keep telling you that God is using the local church, his blood-brought bride, but you secretly wonder if God will ever use the local church in your life ever, ever again. And preachers can doubt. Not even called. It's not working. Oh, and parents, how about parents? Try to be consistent and disciplined over the years. Try to give them the word of God. And there seems to be no change. It's pure chaos. Lord, this doesn't even work. And doubt begins to set in. Suffering and hardship and rejection. Lord, I don't get it. I I say I believe this truth and therefore I'm supposed to have joy in your resurrection. But frankly, I feel horrible. I feel horrible right now. Circumstances of isolation, circumstances that contradict our understanding can fuel our doubt and despondency and it happens in the lives of even mature Christians. 
our expectations are not met. And when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we're tempted to question whether or not he is the expected one. And that leads us to my third point. This is no game. This is no game. Because number three, the seriousness of doubt. The seriousness of doubt. Number one, it causes sadness. In the life of a believer, this is about believers, it causes sadness. Blessed, verse 23, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed, the blessing of God, that's joy, that's a, that's a epithet of happiness. Brothers and sisters, this is so serious because doubt brings despair in the life of a Christian. There is joy and peace in believing. And with doubt, you're not really in that blessed state. You're not in that place of joy. You're not in that place of happiness. It's not the place of peace. You have to understand the seriousness of doubt. And if that goes, if that goes on unchecked, then it can get really serious. It doesn't only cause sadness. It causes, number two, it causes stumbling. It causes stumbling. Well, look at verse 23 again. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know what take offense means in the Greek original? It is the, it's the word for stumbling. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me, who's not tripped up over me. This is serious. Even for the Christian, expectations about Jesus can become a stumbling block when those expectations are not met. Now Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and it's a powerful word, it's only God's power. We can stumble in doubt as a true believer, but is John the Baptist going to stay doubting? Does Thomas of old, does he stay doubting? How about you and how about me? This is serious business. And that leads us to some good news. Number four, the solution for doubt. The solution for doubt. Verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? This is interesting. This is for the believer. Listen, believer, you know this to be true. For the believer, the solution for doubt is always just one thing. What does John the Baptist do? He goes to Jesus. The solution for doubt, there's only one. It's going to Jesus. Now, John couldn't go personally, but he sent his disciples to go to Jesus and ask this question, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Are you the coming one? A messianic title from the Old Testament. Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? And I just love Jesus. And so did John. He doesn't fold his arms, frown at these men, and say, seriously? After all we've been through together? He doesn't shake his head and sigh. I'm not telling you the answer. Go tell John. He knows. No, he knows us. And he is gentle with us. And he is lowly of heart. He meets us right where we are at in our doubts. He knows our doubts in exact detail, and he meets us right there. He's happy to help. He's happy to help. 
Thomas, put your fingers. No one gave him a memo. He knows you. He knows us. He doesn't reject John. He doesn't ignore John. He doesn't shame John. He doesn't admonish John. He doesn't dismiss John. He loves John. He loves me. He loves you as well. And he will meet you in your place of weakness. But he is not content to have you stay in that place of weakness. It's dangerous. He doesn't want you to stay there. He's going to bring you out of your doubt. He's prayed for it. He's faithful to his covenant. Dear doubting brother or sister, where else are you going to go but to Jesus? He alone has the words of everlasting life. And when you go to Jesus, he's going to show you and remind you, he's going to show you two things about himself, two things about himself in this passage. First, he calls us to watch him work, or so watch Jesus work. Watch Jesus work. Look at verse 21. At that very time, he, can, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And so what I think is happening here, just studying it out, is that Jesus is being so kind to John the Baptist and the disciples of John. They come to him. Are you the coming one respecting the other? Hey, you know what? Watch this. Watch this. I want you to see it with your own eyes. He would never do that for the Pharisees who had evil and dark hearts that weren't interested in believing at all, just trapping him. No, no. But for John... Watch this. Watch me go to work. And then he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who are blind. I can just see him doing it all. He, he did one of everything for John the Baptist right then and there. And these two disciples of John were to watch this and to tell John about it. See it with your own eyes. And I think by way of application, we're not there to see this, but we are called to remember the works of our Lord Jesus. We're, we're called to remember our past, to remember the, power, the day of our salvation, the, of our first love. We're called to remember his work of growth and change. We are to remember his answered prayer. We remember that our Lord Jesus Christ has been at work in our lives and is currently at work in our lives. When we are doubting and despondent, all we can see is darkness. He's calling us to watch. He's calling us to look. He's at work. He has been at work. He is at work. And he will be at work. People are growing. People are being saved. He is answering prayer. He is alive and well. He is at work. But none of this really matters much to Jesus because more importantly, number two, he tethers it to his word. So number two, you come to Jesus. You go only to him with your doubt. You watch him work, but more importantly, you listen to Jesus speak. You listen to Jesus speak. Verse 22, and he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Okay, here's what you just have seen. You've heard all about it. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Just a side note, the pinnacle is the gospel being preached. Even above the resurrection of the dead. Did you notice that in the order that Jesus places it? Or John? That's just interesting. But he's quoting the scriptures here. Jesus, you probably see it in your Bible. He's quoting the book of Isaiah, and I don't want you to turn there. I'll just read two of them that I believe are the source of these quotes. Now, listen why John quotes this. 
Isaiah 30, just write the reference down. Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 5. Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 5. It says this. Oh, this is so great what Jesus takes it right from here. Which says in verse 3, encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Here's why John the Baptist got confused. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And then I think he also quoted Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And I'll just read it if you want to write the reference down. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And so what Jesus is saying, now listen carefully, this is, this is, listen very carefully, this is important. And so what Jesus is saying, John... John, John, the Scripture is true. The Scripture is being fulfilled. What you know in, that is written in the book of Isaiah is happening. Yes, in those Isaiah passages, there is judgment, there is vengeance. But Jesus does not explain that to John. Hear me on this. He doesn't say, now... John, let's get some coffee and do some eschatology together. No, no. He doesn't say, uh, you see, the leaders have to reject me, and then I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise after the third day. John, let me tell you, there's an already and not yet happening here theologically. Or he doesn't say, look, it's the mystery of the church age, John. The Jews must reject so that the Gentiles can be grafted in, John. I'm coming now in mercy, but don't worry. You preached it. It's going to be fulfilled. It's partial now. I will come again in fulfillment of all those Isaiah passages in judgment later. No. Jesus doesn't answer every one of his questions. He says, John, because he couldn't. He wasn't ready for it. He could not. John, I am fulfilling this scripture. Trust the word of God. You're going to have to trust me. What is happening right now is found in the word of God. It's not inconsistent with the messianic prophecies of the word of God. And what can we learn from that and our struggles with doubt today? Well, first we must go to Jesus. But when we get to Jesus, because we're not going to, probably, we're not going to find Jesus appear to us while we're shaving. We will find Jesus. We go to Jesus through the Spirit in the Word of God. We go there. We don't go to the newspaper to help our doubts. We don't go, go to Fox News to help our doubts. You might want to rethink that podcast for your doubts. No, we go to the Scriptures. We go to the Scriptures personally. We go expectantly. We don't look for a miracle to overcome our doubts. Yes, there's a place for apologetics. We love manuscript evidence. We love archaeological evidence. We love scientific evidence and all of that. And that can be somewhat helpful. There's a place for other people's testimonies of how the Lord is working in their life and working in your life and all of that. There's, there's, there's help in remembering the works of the Lord, but nothing, and none of those matter at all if they're not tethered into the objective revelation of the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. Listen very carefully with your doubts. God has given us no more evidence 
than is already contained within his sufficient word. Where do you go with your despondent doubts? With your fears and your confusion, you go to the Word of God. You're not going there for intellectual knowledge. You're going there to find Jesus. You're going there to meet Jesus. Look for evidence in the Word. So when you're battling discouragement and doubt, read the Bible. Isn't it funny that's the last place we go? The last place. Go to the word. Go to the word in faith. The enemy uses doubt as a weapon and will work overtime to keep you away from the word. So when you come and you're doubting and you're in despondency, come to the word of God, get into the book and say, Lord, I'm wrestling with you until you show me your glory. And I would say if you are struggling with doubt today, go right to the Psalms. Go right to the Psalms and, and find a kindred spirit struggling at the first half of the Psalm. And then see, the, and see that they're a believer and they say, but I will trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who is with me to the end. Go to the Psalms and be reminded of God's mighty person and work. So you need to go personally to the Word to meet with Jesus, but then you got to go corporately to the Word. When you are in doubt, one of the reasons you're in doubt is just like John the Baptist. You're isolated. He's alone rotting in prison for months. He's isolated. If you're struggling with doubt, go to the Word where, the, where you're going to see Jesus and the ordinances and fellowship and praying to him, coming to the word of God, come to the fellowship. That is sometimes the last place we want to be. You know, Sometimes in doubt and despair, we just, we feel alone, but you know what? We just want to be left alone. But I would say to you, as one of your pastors, that sermon you missed, you needed it. That prayer meeting, you needed it. Those hymns, that, the, the singing of the corporate hymns, you needed it. You needed it, that. The gathering would have encouraged us. Isolation leads to doubt and despair. You go to Jesus individually and you go to him corporately and you've come, you're coming to the word of God. Go to the scriptures. And when you're going to the scriptures, really seek to understand the suffering, the doctrine of suffering. When you go to the scriptures, really seek to understand the sovereignty of God. When you go to the scriptures, Seek more than suffering in the sovereignty of God. Most importantly, grow in your understanding of your Savior because he invites you to meet him there in your doubts, to meet him in his word. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you know what? When you meet him there, you'll be put in that blessed state again. Blessed is he, verse 23, who does not take offenses at, at me. That's not just for John the Baptist. Blessed is he. It's for all of us. There's the happy, joyful resting of trusting in the word of Jesus. The reality is that it was hard for John wasn't it, between the two comings of Christ and not understanding the mystery? Do you think it got any easier for the disciples when their Lord and Savior hung unrecognizable, bloody, and naked upon a Roman cross? Talk about expectations not being met. Are you kidding me? 
Talk about disappointment. Peter, I'm going back fishing. Thomas, hold on a minute. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. But then Jesus came to him. Isn't it great that, that you will go to Jesus, but he ever lives to pray for you? He's coming to you. He will come and get you in your doubts. Jesus shows up and he says, hey, guys, I'm not talking about anything else. Thomas, Thomas, reach here with your finger. How'd you know? Reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here with your hand and place it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then, of course, when Jesus comes to us in his word through the spirit and faith takes flight, then we make the confession that Peter made of old, right? One of the highest Christological confessions ever in the word of God by doubting Thomas, where he says, my Lord and my God. Blessed are they, Jesus says. You know what Jesus says after that? He says, oh, Thomas, I love you, but because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And the next line, it says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing in the words of Scripture. Well, not long after John asked this question of Jesus in our passage, his head was severed from his body, and his life was over. The question is, did John go into eternity doubting? Well, there's a clue. John's disciples, the ones who came to Jesus, took away his body for burial, John the Baptist's body. But according to Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, after that, they went and reported to Jesus. If John had given up on Jesus rotting in jail, would his disciples have sought out Jesus to tell him about John's death? No. John's faith took flight. Personal and prophetic expectations aside, I believe Jesus. I trust his word. And as John sat in the darkness... The word of Jesus was enough for him. Is the word of Jesus enough for you?